Believe podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I am the owner of the online weaving shop Just Yarn and Fiber and the host of this podcast. So today I'm really pleased to welcome Tian Chu to the Weave podcast. I have admired Tian's work for many years and in particular her spectacular use of color. Tian Chu is an award-winning textile artist and writer who lives and works in the Bay Area and her weaving has appeared on the cover of Handwoven Magazine and her handwoven wedding dress was part of an exhibit of the American Textile History Museum and she writes regularly for weaving journals. She's also the president of the board at the San Jose Museum of Quilts and Textiles. In addition to all of this, Tian is also a teacher with a very informative blog called Warp and Weave about how weavers can use color to accomplish their visions. There's so much for us to talk about and learn from you, Tian, and I'm so glad you agreed to talk on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so I saw on your pod, on your website that you bought your first loom in 2006, and I'm wondering if you could tell me how you found your way to weaving and why did it stick? So I started weaving, uh, well, so I've been doing fiber art, uh, arts pretty much since I was six. My mom taught me how to make a vest for my brother, and so that was what got me started. Uh, in college, I did a lot of cross-stitch. I did... Um, some spinning and some knitting and kind of continued with that for a while and then in the like 2005 or so I was I had spun and knit a ring shawl um, in fact two ring shawls hmm. and designed the shawls and I felt like I had conquered all the mo mountains that I wanted to in spinning and knitting and so I was casting around for something else to do and a friend uh, said, well, why don't you try weaving? It's the most intellectually interesting of all the fiber arts. And so I bought an eight shaft baby wolf and learned how to weave. And she was absolutely right. And I've been in love with it ever since. That's great. So you went straight from not knowing how to weave to an eight shaft floor loom. Why did you decide to jump into that? Uh, partly because my personal belief is that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And so if you're going to get started, you know, you might as well get started with something complex. And then part of it was also just that I looked at all the sort of the patterns in Davison and in Strickler, and I found that most of the things that interested me were eight-shaft designs. That's great. And, and what is it about weaving that has made you stick with it, do you think? So there's this thing that I call sort of the ratio between hands and head. Um, and that's how much time does it take for you to execute something as opposed to how much time did it take you to design it. And designing is my favorite part, sort of solve, problem solving all the issues that might come up and so on. And in knitting, it's very easy to come up with an idea that is very simple and will take you 80 hours to do. So it's mostly hands and not, not a whole lot of head. Um, and, you know, spending is even more so. And so I was looking for something that I could think about. Um, and something that I could think hard about. And the thing about weaving is that it is so comp it can be so simple and it can be so, so complex. And so for somebody like me who likes a technical challenge and a design challenge, it's just perfect. And then on the other end of the spectrum, of course, if you want to weave simple things, you can totally weave simple things. And I think that's one of the beauties about weaving. Yeah, I, I really love that about weaving too. And I find talking to weavers that a lot of people are, are really drawn to, to that aspect of it. Um, 
speaking of designing, I think one of the first things that made me aware of you as a weaver and designer was your Kodachrome jacket, um, which won the Handwoven Garment Challenge in 2011. And for people who haven't seen it, it's a really spectacular and colorful piece. And I'd really love to hear more about your process of designing and weaving that and sharing that with the weaving community. Sure. So the Kodachrome jacket was my, uh, so it's a short project for me, uh, which is to say that it took me about three or four months, mm -hmm. but relative to my wedding dress, which took uh, an entire year and my autumn splendor coat, which took nine months, that was a pretty quick project. So what had happened was that I was, uh, I had just finished weaving my wedding dress and that project took me over a thousand hours and one year. And then after that, I had pretty much had it with white. And so when Handwoven came up with a garment challenge, I decided to get absolutely as far away from white as I could. And the result was Kodachrome and it is pretty darn colorful. Uh, so because it was for Handwoven contest, I couldn't design the thing from scratch uh, or the sewing pattern I couldn't just design from scratch. And I would want to use an eight shaft uh, or less design. And so that put some interesting constraints. Normally I was weaving on 24 or 16 or anyway, lots of shafts. And then the other challenge was that I wanted to make something that would look good far away and close up because Kodachrome is fundamentally a runway garment. And the problem with runway garments is that they're being seen on the runway in the fashion show and they're being seen 10 to 30 feet away. And from that distance, pretty much all you can see is color and sort of the cut of the garment. Uh, one of the reasons that handwoven garments tend not to do well on the runway uh, is that most handwoven patterns are only visible wh when you get close, five or six feet away. And so from 30 feet away, it looks kind of shapeless. And so I didn't want that to be the case with Kodachrome. And so I designed it uh, by using a lot of patches of painted warp. One of the things that has sort of bugged me about painted warps is that they tend to be fairly plain horizontal stripes across the warp. And to me, that looks kind of boring. And so for Kodachrome, I did, I think six, it was woven 24 inches wide in, uh, I guess, 12 bouts that were each two inches wide. And I just dyed them all together. And then I offset the ends to produce um, a pattern of colors that was much more interesting than just uh, a single um, a single pattern across the entire warp. Um, and, then, so, and then I also wanted it to be look interesting close up, and so that was why I put in a fairly complex sort of advancing twill X's and O's pattern. That's great, and then, and then you sewed that all together also yourself? Yes, I was working with a woman named Sharon Bell for my wedding dress and so she taught me all about couture sewing which I knew nothing about and so it it's not just uh it's not just hand woven it's also sewn using couture techniques which I think really makes a difference to the quality of a garment yeah absolutely it's really such a neat piece and I'm gonna link to it from the show notes so that people can mm -hmm. easily find it and take a look um, so you mentioned a couple times about your handwoven wedding dress, which I know was part of an exhibit at the American Textile History Museum. And can you talk more about that dress and the process of creating that? Sure. Um, the dress is kind of a funny story. Uh, let's start with the fact that 
I was not engaged when I started it. Um, and in fact, the dress was responsible for the engagement, which is kind of interesting. Oh, um, I want to hear more. <laughs> so it all started um, in 2000, I think, 10. I was taking, I was going to CNCH, which is the uh, my local regional conference. And I was taking a workshop from by Sharon Alderman uh, about designing fabric for a specific project, uh, for a specific use. And I was very interested in this. And I was also trying to figure out what could I think of that would be so complicated that it would actually need advice from such a renowned weaver as Sharon. And so I was thinking and I was thinking and that thought, you know, I am in my late 30s. I will probably get married at some point. Maybe to Mike, that would be nice. But, you know, if not, I'm pretty sure that sometime in the next 50 years of my life, I will get married. Um, and I'd always wanted to weave a wedding dress, and so I wove samples for the wedding dress at the, at the workshop. And then I came home, and I blogged about it, and I said, uh, and I said, by the way, just in case any of you are wondering, Mike and I are not engaged. This is a purely theoretical wedding dress. Now, Mike reads my blog, and so the next <laughs> thing I know, he turns, up, he turns up the door to my studio and says, you know, I wouldn't actually mind being married to you. <laughs> well, he's an engineer. <laughs> I wasn't really expecting the down on one knee thing. Oh, that's very sweet. I love it. Um, and so then I got really started on it. And it was an interesting project because um, not only was it a big project, but I had only been weaving for about three and a half years. And so it was really something that would, in theory, have been far beyond my reach. And in fact, I made a bunch of huge mistakes uh, when I was making it. Um, things like my original sample was uh, four inches wide, and so I thought that 96 ends per inch would be perfectly reasonable based on the sample uh, for the dress fabric, and it turned out the actual number was more like six, it was either 60 or 72. And so, th you know, the first time I tried to weave it, this, the, it was just too dense. I couldn't do anything with it. And then I put on a 20-yard warp in fine threads, which I had never done before and discovered that the hard way that you need to put tension on the threads when you're winding on or you wind up with tension nightmares. So that was another six weeks of worth down the tubes. And so there was a lot, of, and then it was just a lot of weaving. It was 16 yards for the coat and 16 yards for the dress itself. Um, and then I had to deal with the fact that I didn't actually know how to do couture sewing. Um, and so I spent something like three or four months trying to find someone who, who could teach me. And eventually I found her, and she, uh, that was Sharon Bell. She used to be the dean of a fashion school down in L.A. And she taught me how to do it. And I finally managed to finish it. It was like, it took something like 11 or 12 months um, and well over a thousand hours worth of work. But it was totally worth it. It was gorgeous. Yeah. And, and it kind of got me started on the I want to be sort of a professional weaver artist thing. Because up until then, so I went to, I went to Caltech, uh, which is about as far from art school as you can possibly get. Uh, my parents, my mom is a biochemist, my dad was an astrophysicist, and so, you know, science and technology run in my blood. I had spent 20 years working in high tech, and so I just never thought of myself as an artist, because that was what, like, other people did, right? Sort of like artists will say, I'm not a rocket scientist, you know. I might have been a rocket scientist, but I wasn't an artist. And so, but a after looking at the, at the dress, I thought, you know, maybe I could be an artist. And so it really had a profound effect 
on sort of my creative life. Yeah, it sounds like it. What was it about the dress and that process that really shifted that mindset for you? I think a lot of it was just looking at it afterwards and thinking, wow, that is, you know, that is something that I would call a masterpiece. You know, this is something that is really, really beautiful. And the fact that it won a bunch of awards and that uh, it wound up in a museum um, was validating. But I think the most important thing for me was that it was the first time I had made something and looked at it and said, oh my God, that is gorgeous. Yeah, and what did it feel like to wear that on your wedding day? Amazing. Mm. <laughs> um, it was, because you know, because it was special. It wasn't just that it was a wedding dress. It was also, I had woven meaning into it. Uh, so it's a dress and a coat, and, or like a robe. And down the front of the robe, I had woven in double happiness characters, which in, China, in Chinese is sort of a wish for a happy marriage. It's the character for happiness written twice and then merged into a single character. And then I had woven eternity t knots, uh, it's also called the Buddha's knot, uh, into the body of the coat. And then I had woven a three-strand Celtic braid into the dress, uh, which means eternity in Celtic um, culture. And so it, it was not just that it was a pretty dress, but it was also immensely meaningful. It, you know how they talk about prayer shawls um, or where the shawl itself is a prayer. I felt like the dress itself uh, was a prayer. Wow, it sounds really, really special. How did, how did it end up in a museum? I had kind of been trying to find a museum to take it, not all that hard, and I hadn't, uh, I hadn't found one, but, um, and then out of the blue, I got an email from Karen Hobo, who, who was the curator at the American Textile History Museum. And she said that she had sent out a call asking people for wedding dresses for, with interesting stories for their wedding, upcoming wedding dress exhibit. And somebody on her mailing list, uh, said, oh, you should go look at this dress. And so she looked at my dress and she said, you know, that is the most interesting story I've ever heard, you know, about a wedding dress. And so she asked if she could get it for the exhibit. And I said, yes. And she said, um, can, and I said, would you like it for your collection? She said, yes, we'd love it. And that was that. And then, unfortunately, the American Textile History Museum closed uh, about two years ago, but yeah. now it's at the Henry Ford Museum in Michigan. Wow, that's really great. Thanks for sharing the story of that. Um, I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about your teaching, which is another big part of your weaving practice. Um, your blog has very informative and practical tips about working with color and you do a lot of teaching and writing about working with color. And I loved reading about how you approach color as a science experiment and testing different ways to use clashing colors or to avoid clashing colors. And I was curious how you taught yourself to work with color. Well, so I, you know, I come from a science background and as an artist, I still approach things scientifically to some degree. Um, I also think that this whole left brain, right brain division thing is sort of stupid but that's an story, another story for another time. Um, I learned about color by reading a lot of color theory, which turns out, unfortunately, not to be terribly useful for weavers because the problems that we face are generally different from the problems that artists face. And so also generally different from the things that you learn about in color theory. 
And so then I started doing experiments to say, well, how does this apply? Um, so there are certain principles that you learn from color theory, mm -hmm. and then you have to see, figure out how these principles apply to, act, to actually woven projects. And so, for example, there's one principle that says there's optical mixing, uh, which says that small dots of, of different colors blend into a single color if the eye can't perceive them very clearly. So like magazines are printed, you know, with little dots of color. If you look really closely at one, um, that look like a, a different color when the eye combines them. And so the question of how plain weave looks, plain weave is a lot of little dots of color. And so if you take two colors and you interlace them in plain weave or something else with a lot of really short floats, they'll tend to blend together. But if you do like plain, uh, if you do something like twill blocks, which have concentrated parts of one color, uh, in patches versus concentrated parts of another color, uh, it, you know, in, so you, you can get di very different colors. And so that taught me that weave structure makes a big difference uh, in how two colors will mix. And so by finding those individual rules and then learning how to sort of put those rules together into sort of rules for design, it's kind of like um, using little building blocks. Uh, you know, as I was a former mathematician, and to me, it's fascinating the way that color actually is kind of a science um, in that it, you know, it follows certain rules because that, uh, that's how the eye behaves. And since it follows certain rules, then you can also uh, use those rules uh, to develop sort of design strategies. And I think people have a tendency to view color as something mystical that you're either born with or you're not. And I can tell you that I was not born with an eye for color. If you saw how I dressed like in high school, you would certainly know that. Um, but I think, you know, but I think it's something that you can totally learn. Uh, and so one of the things that I'm really trying to teach is those principles of color and teach people how to apply them. Because I really think it's a lot, you know, it is not simple, but it's a lot simpler than people think. Yeah, could you share one of the top one or two principles that you think are the most important for weavers who are starting to learn about color to, to use in their work? So I think the first one is that the eye sees differences in black and white much more strongly than it sees differences in, like, say, between red and blue. Um, so the difference between red and light red is very, is much greater than the difference between red and blue of a similar light and dark. That runs sort of counterintuitive, um, but it turns out the eye has a lot more receptors for black and white than it does for color. And what that means is that uh, if you want something to be visible from a distance, you want to make it a very light color with a very dark color, and you want to choose a weave structure that doesn't blend the two, like I was, I was talking about earlier. You want to use a, uh, a weave structure that produces patches of a very light color next to patches of a very dark color as opposed to blending them evenly with plain weave. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What, what was in your process of, of learning this, what are some of the big color mistakes that you've made and how did you learn from those? So my very first weaving project or something very close to my very first weaving project was a color gamp. And I decided that I wanted to dye all the colors in the color gamp because why not? Um, and the first thing I discovered was that red and blue mixed together do not produce purple. Uh, because red and, um, 
because it turns out that the red, yellow, and blue primary color mixing thing that they teach you in art school is actually outdated. The primary colors for dyes and for sort of subtractive color mixing, which is to say anything physical, uh, are, are uh, turquoise, magenta, and yellow. And so it turns out that red is actually a mix uh, between magenta and yellow. And so when you add that to blue, which is a mix of magenta and turquoise, what you wind up is dull purple. Uh, so that was the first mistake I had made. The second mistake I made was in assuming that just because they were bright colors, they were I was going to get a bright color. And as it happens, if you blend yellow and purple in those tiny little dots, they blend into brown. Or gray if you get it really right, but usually brown. Uh, and so, you know, my beautiful bright color gamp turned out to be actually not all that beautiful and not all that bright. Yeah, it's definitely a problem that I think all of us experience. And I, I hear from a lot of weavers, new ones and people who've been weaving for a while as they're selecting colors, you know, really trying to figure out how to pair the right colors with each other and with the right structures so that the gorgeous yarn that they buy or that they dye themselves doesn't end up into a muddy pile of mud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what are you most excited to be weaving and or dyeing in 2018? Uh, so I have two things. One is that I am working on a commission for a friend of mine who is a Unitarian minister, or rather he's in seminary to become one. And so he wanted a very special stole that w depicted a lake at uh, kind of at midnight, or no, at sunset. And in that, uh, and then he wants silverfish at the bottom and stars at the top and so on. And this is an incredibly complicated project, which I'm really enjoying. Hmm. I dyed some yarns for it, and then I'm figuring out all the blends of different yarn colors and so on, and the weave structures that I would need to do in order to weave this image. I have a jacquard loom, and so I actually do have the control to do it, but figuring out how to get 14 colors when you only have five different yarns, you know, becomes a challenge anyway. So that's the first thing I'm doing. But the big thing for me isn't actually a weaving project. Um, I'm working on getting my first online class about color out, and I'm hoping to launch it in the next month or two. And so that's really the big thing I want to achieve for 2018. That's really exciting. Can you can you share more about that and how people can learn about it and get involved? So I'm blogging about color at warpandweave.com. Um, I assume you'll link that in the show, show notes. Yes. Um, and so I'm doing... I'm writing blog posts that solve specific problems with color. In my online class, I'm planning on doing two classes initially. One is sort of a series of videos uh, that teach the principles of color that I've been working that I've been working out, and then the other one will be a much more interactive online workshop with uh, with a discussion forum for students uh, and. Uh, with a series of lectures and exercises and so on that runs over a couple of weeks. And that one is not just about understanding the principles, but also about applying them, which I think is actually much more important uh, for two reasons. One, because theory is great, but actually putting it into practice is something very different. And the other reason is that a lot of people are really scared of color. And so 
you know, working through a sequence of exercises and so on gives people an opportunity to start experimenting with color in kind of a safe environment. So that's, that's what I'm great. Planning. And is that going to be suitable for new weavers or experienced weavers or all types of weavers? All types of weavers, really, because color is, is really universal. You know, tapestry weavers use color. Uh, rigid heddle weavers use color. People with four shafts and eight shafts and 40 shafts all use color. And the, the how colors interact really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what equipment you're using or really with your experience level. Yeah, definitely. And I will I will link to your blog. Are people going to be able to sign up for the class there? And, and when do you expect? Yes, to be you can sign up for my mailing list uh, and for to be informed about the class on the website. Uh, I'm expecting that it'll be open sometime, I'm thinking probably March at this point. Great. That sounds really exciting. I'm interested also in learning more. I know I've learned a lot just from reading your blog, and I really appreciate the way you talk about color as a scientific thing that you can learn and not just a mystical thing that some artists are born with, because um, I think... I think it's really true. And the, the more we learn and the more we experiment, the more we can more quickly and accurately create what it is in our head that we want to be in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I have another question, which is that mm -hmm. I learned that you're the president of the board at the San Jose Museum of Quilts and Textiles, and I'd love to learn more about what your work there. It's interesting. Um, you know, as president of the board, the board's job is really to provide vision um, and oversight. But I got involved with the museum because I thought it was fascinating. You know, it's it's a it's a textile museum near me, and uh, it's really producing a lot of exhibiting a lot of cutting edge textile art. And so I thought that was really fascinating. And I think as as president, my goal is mostly to help the museum f a transition from sort of more of a historical museum to more of an art museum and sort of to help with the logistics of of getting us there and with the fundraising and things like that so it's really interesting because it's given me a, a view into the museum world that i just really didn't have before uh in terms of both the mechanics of how one raises money for a museum and decides on exhibits and things like that, uh, and also just on what kinds of people are essential to keeping a museum running and how one decides, you know, what to exhibit and things like that. It, it, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I bet it is. Are you involved with planning some upcoming exhibits there? No, that's the ex exhib exhibitions curator's uh, job. Mine is more sort of, uh, and the board's generally is more oversight and vision. So the, the way it works is that the, the board says this is the direction we would like to go and uh, talks to the executive director to kind of develop that. And then the d executive director's job is to uh, take that vision and make, it, and make it happen. And so the things that we talk about at the board meetings tend to be things like, um, you know, is this the direction we want to take the museum? But it's also about things like, you know, looking at the financial reports and saying, well, okay, this is, this is where we are right now. Uh, where do we want to be? How can the board as a whole support that? Uh, so we're kind of involved. We're, 
were mostly involved in guiding the museum, but the actual doing things part belongs to uh, the the staff of the museum. So the I hear about all the exhibits, and we've got some great ones coming up uh, from the exhibitions curator, but uh, I don't I don't personally do that myself. It sounds like you have your foot in many different parts of the textile world, and it must be an interesting um, and fascinating life to get to experience all those different things. I appreciate you sharing some of them with me and with my listeners today. Um, it's been so great talking to you and learning from you, and I would love if you could share more about how weavers could follow you and learn more from you. I'm going to link to your website, but is there social media anywhere that they can find you as well? Uh, I have a Warp and Weave uh, business page on Facebook. Uh, people are welcome to follow me on Facebook. I think there's only one of me. Um, if you if you search for Tian Chu, you will find me. Uh, and then I also have an artist's website at tianchu.com. Great. And is there any last words of wisdom about weaving that you'd like to share before we sign off? Uh, I would like to plug put a plug in for one idea, which is that uh, art is not about talent. It's about study. Um, because a lot of people think they can't be artists because they don't draw fabulous things or they think that they can't be physicists because they happen to be artists or so on. And, you know, all of these things are not rocket science, you know, it's, or maybe it's more accurate to say that they're not mystical. Uh, if you study art and you study design, you will get better as an artist. Uh, if you study physics, you will get better as a physicist. And, uh, so I think a lot of people see art as something that you have to have a talent to do and you absolutely do not because I was not born with artistic talent. Uh, I was born to be a scientist and I changed my mind and I worked on it and I studied art and you know now I'm an artist. That's really such a great message and um, I appreciate you sharing it and sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much Tian. Thank you. If you'd like to see some of the gorgeous weaving and dyeing that Tian mentioned in this conversation, you can see it in the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash podcast hyphen three. I also linked to Tian's website and blog so that you can learn more about the classes she will be launching on color soon. That's a wrap for the first three episodes of the Weave podcast. I'd really love to hear what you think, so please reach out to me on Instagram at gistyarn. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N by email at sarah at gistyarn.com, Sarah with an H, or you can come join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash weave podcast. On the next episode, which will be released next Monday, I'm talking to the mother-daughter team behind Murex Looms, Claudia Chase and Elena Zuyak. We talk about how they built a U.S. manufacturing process, what it's like to run a family business, and some of their favorite things they've seen woven on Merrick's looms. It was a really fun conversation, so I hope that you're going to tune in. And until next time, 